This message by Zach Varnell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Zach serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Good morning. Morning, everyone. Go ahead. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. If you need a Bible this morning, raise your hand. Love to get you a Bible. Acts chapter 16. Between the fall of 1940 and the spring of 1941, during World War II, the German Luftwaffe almost every day bombed English cities. It was a campaign known as the Blitz. And each night, sirens would sound as the planes approached and the people would rush into these bomb shelters, not knowing what was going to happen, not knowing if they'd even emerge, not knowing what they were going to emerge to see, the devastation and destruction. Well, at the same time, many American soldiers were actually stationed right outside of London and at times would be going into the city to secure supplies for the things that they were doing. And while there, they too would be swept up into these bombing raids. Well, the American soldiers returned home and they spoke of these moments when they were in the bomb shelters with British civilians, most of them women and children because the men were off fighting. And yet there, in the darkness, inside those shelters, in the midst of chaos, and uncertainty and devastation, the soldiers heard something amazing, singing. They sang, there'll be bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover. Tomorrow, just you wait and see. There'll be love and laughter and peace ever after. Tomorrow, when the world is free. They were singing in the midst of chaos singing. And there was singing because there was hope. In our text today, as this church in Philippi is founded, this wonderful little church begins, it's founded through faith and prayer and singing in the midst of adversity. And I think that that's something of what the Lord has for us today in our own lives. Even the prophetic word this morning, the Lord wants to build our faith strengthened faith. He wants us to trust. He is powerfully at work in our lives, even in the midst of adversity. And that gives us reasons to sing. The main point today, let's witness to Christ. Let's witness to Christ as we trust him in our trials. Bruce Milne is a commentator, and he wrote this in his commentary on Acts. He said it about this passage, it is an amazing account And its power still resonates across the centuries. Here is a Christianity of which the world knows nothing. Let's read this amazing story together. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. This is God's word. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, 
These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then they brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's stop there. It's an incredible story. Three points today to help us learn to witness to Christ and to trust him. Number one, the gospel powerfully opposes evil. Verses 16 to 24. Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, this apostolic team, they head again to the place of prayer, verse 16 tells us. The place where Lydia had heard the gospel and been saved in the verses just above our text, the Lord had opened her heart to pay attention to the word. God is at work. He's bearing fruit. There's joy. There is success in the ministry of these apostles. And so not surprisingly, here comes opposition. Isn't that the pattern we see in Acts? As the gospel goes forth, it's met with opposition. Don't you wish sometimes they just had it smooth, smooth sailing for just a little while? 
It's met with opposition. The slave girl with this spirit of divination begins to follow them. It means she had a demonic spirit that gave her information so that she could tell people secrets about their lives. And people would pay her for this. This was a condemned practice for God's people, but the Greeks found security in it. They were afraid of the gods. And so they found security in having their fortunes told. Maybe that sounds odd to us, but this sort of thing was not unusual. In this day, this context, not unusual to the original readers. The Bible has a very supernatural worldview, doesn't it? Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what's going on. This evil is opposed to the gospel. And so for many days, she was crying out. Verse 17, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now you might be thinking, what's wrong with that? That's true. That's good. What's wrong with that? This was not evangelism. Remember the source. This was demonic. This was a distraction. Listen, Satan will use anything he can to hinder faith. He'll do anything he can, use anything he can to discourage faith, to create a barrier to faith, even things that sound close to the truth. The problem is that while she was doing this, she wasn't bringing clarity to the message the apostles were proclaiming. She was confusing it. People would have associated her with these men and thought. They would have known she was a fortune teller. They would have associated them together and thought, oh, look, another deity for us to choose from. That's why it burdened Paul. <laughs> yeah, I bet. That's why he became greatly annoyed. The word means disturbed. Now, we're not sure why he let it go on for so long. Maybe it's because he knew what would happen. If he cast the demon out, he was trying to stay out of trouble. Maybe he was trying to preach the gospel unhindered as long as he could. But finally, he could not take it anymore. Now, this is not a verse for us to use to justify annoyed outbursts, okay? I was just greatly annoyed like Paul. No, you weren't. Verse 18, he commands this spirit, come out in the name of of Jesus Christ. This is God's power on display, isn't it? Because the demon comes out. And not only that, it seems like because this, this slave girl is positioned between two other conversions, most commentators agree she also in this moment was delivered and, become, and became a Christian. She experienced the salvation she had been announcing unknowingly. The church in this moment, it's being established through the power and proclamation and triumph of the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's how it begins, and that's how it will endure. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoners free. But when this evil spirit was cast out, so, so were her owners' hope of fortune. In verse 19, they, they seize Paul and Silas, 
and they drag them into the marketplace before the rulers. It gets hostile when economics get involved. That's another theme we see in the Gospels and Acts, isn't it? Remember the demoniac that Jesus heals in Mark 5? A man who no one could control because of his strength. And there were many demons. Remember, they were called legion. And Jesus came and delivered the man. Cast the demons into the pigs who rushed down the hill and were drowned. And even though it was this incredible deliverance, the people didn't want Jesus to stay because they didn't like their loss of profit. There's a warning here about wanting money more than salvation. It's spiritual blindness. You cannot serve God and money if money becomes your ultimate thing. So Paul and Silas, they're, they're drugged before the magistrates, and the charges brought against them are false. Verses 20 and, and 21, they, they appeal to racial prejudice. They stir up hatred and bigotry. It's unjust. It's lies. But remember, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. This is demonic. This is Satan's work. R.C. Sproul about this text says, it was the best thing that ever happened in that city, of course. But the people didn't see it that way. Spiritual blindness. Satan blinds the minds. So the charges were multiplied. And Paul and Silas, they are stripped. They are beaten publicly with rods. They are thrown and locked into prison. You ever been publicly humiliated? I mean, even in, even in a minor way, it can be disheartening. It can stick with you. I was in middle school, the cafeteria. I dropped my tray in the middle of the cafeteria and made a huge mess with my lunch. A teacher came to me and said, Zach, I want you to mop the floor. And I said, okay. I didn't know how to mop. Got the mop bucket. I basically dumped the entire mop bucket out on the floor along with the mess I had already made. After which the teacher then said, Zach, what are you doing? In a middle school cafeteria, it became very quiet. And to this day, I cannot look at a mop bucket without fear and trembling. <laughs> Minor thing, but very effective. This form of punishment, public shaming, it's been used throughout history to silence or control the behavior of someone. This was meant to make an example out of them, and this was severe. Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, he was treated shamefully in Philippi, beaten, locked up, stowed away in the dark inner prison. Why? Why is Christianity so opposed? You know, you got to understand, in this context, there were lots of different religions that were made legitimate in the Roman Empire and tolerated. So many different religions were tolerated. Why not Christianity? Well, it's because Christianity opposes evil. And part of opposing evil is opposing all forms of false salvation. Christianity makes exclusive claims, and that's why people hate it. To embrace the gospel, to embrace the hope we have in Christ, you must flee from every false form of salvation, because there's, there's salvation nowhere else. 
And that's why people hate it. It opposes evil. But at the same time, point two, the gospel powerfully sustains and transforms. Verses 24, 25 to 34. They were locked in the inner prison and yet look back at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They, they weren't groaning. <laughs> they, they were praising God. They, they weren't cursing the magistrates for their maltreatment. They were blessing the Lord. They weren't regretting the decision they had made to come to Macedonia. They, were, they weren't thinking, oh, we shouldn't have done this. What a mistake we've made. It's too hard. Where's the guy who called us here in the first place? They were entrusting their souls to their faithful creator. Tertullian, an early church father, said, the leg does not feel the chain when the mind is in the heavens. See, these jail conditions, I mean, jail was cut out of the dirt. It, they were miserable. There was a stench. It was dark. Their stocks, they were not just handcuffs around their legs or wrists. They weren't simply handcuffs. They were meant to inflict pain. They, they were meant to not allow the prisoner to find a comfortable position or to be able to lie down. No wonder Paul and Silas are still awake at midnight. But, but what are they doing? What would you be doing? What would I be doing? Man, they are praying and singing. David Pallison, the Christian counselor, in his book, God's Grace in Your Suffering, he says this wonderful one line, hardships give us good reasons to be anxious. So God gives better reasons to trust him. That's, that's what Paul and Silas were doing. They were believing those better reasons. We're not prisoners of Rome. We're prisoners of Christ and for Christ. And don't you love the end of verse 25? And the prisoners were listening to them. <laughs> I bet they were listening to them. How we respond to suffering and adversity is a witness to the watching world, isn't it? I mean, what, what's the world learning? What, what are they learning about the effects of the gospel? In our lives. So often suffering is definitely true for me. Trials can, can just turn us inward. We can be tempted to fix our gaze on ourselves, on the trouble itself, on how we're responding to the trouble, on how other people or how we want other people to be responding to us. The fight of faith is the fight to turn from inward to outward and to think on the promises of God. I think that's part of why Paul and Silas were singing and praying. I don't think it was necessarily easy. I think they were fighting for faith. They were turning outward. They were fixing their gaze beyond where they were. Listen, you, you simply can't ignore someone who's singing while suffering. I think one of the greatest privileges I have in pastoral ministry are the times I get to lead our congregation in singing. And look out over and see you. Many of you, I know things, difficult things are going on in your lives. And you are singing and praising the Lord and blessing his name. It honors him. It's a powerful witness. See, the question is not, will we meet trials? The question is, how are we going to meet them? 
Author Jerry Bridges has gone to be with the Lord now, but over the course of four years, he studied God's sovereignty in the affairs of our lives. And he wrote his excellent book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. We have it in the bookstore. And in his study, he searched through the writings of saints throughout the centuries. And he found one by John L. Dagg from his 1857 Manual of Theology. And he found this quote and he said, it could not be improved upon. So I thought I would read it to you. This is what he says. It should fill us with joy that infinite wisdom guides the affairs of the world. Many of its events are shrouded in darkness and mystery and inexorable confusion sometimes seems to reign. Often wickedness prevails and God seems to have forgotten the creatures that he has made. Our own path through life is dark and devious and beset with difficulties and dangers. How full of consolation is the doctrine that infinite wisdom directs every event, brings order out of confusion and light out of darkness, and to those who love God causes all things, whatever be their present aspect and apparent tendency to work together for good. There are reasons to trust the Lord. Paul later wrote Philippians, probably writing to some of these same people he was in prison with. And he wrote these words, Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. These are not platitudes. They are commands. They are enabled by the Spirit of God for us to obey, and the Lord gave them through one who knew what it was to suffer. There are reasons to trust the Lord. So so what reasons are you needing reminded of this morning? We've sung about so many already. Reasons to trust the Lord. What are you facing now where you, you need these reasons to encourage your soul and help you endure and fight for faith. Maybe you are wrestling with unanswered prayers. Maybe you face relational challenges that just seem insurmountable. Maybe you're facing some physical hindrance that's keeping you from doing the things you want to. Maybe your outlook of the future or or for your children's future has recently changed dramatically. Oh, Even though trials give us reasons to worry, God gives us better reasons to trust him. Do not fear, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. He says he'll never leave us or forsake us. You're of more value than many sparrows. All authority has been given to him. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There are reasons to trust him. So even though it's difficult, may he enable us to witness to him as we do as we do trust him. The earthquake, it's not, a random, it's not a random chance. It's answer to prayer. But not prayer for the apostles to be rescued from prison. Prayer for the gospel to advance. 
See, see, God doesn't send the earthquake to free Paul and Silas. He sends the earthquake to save the jailer. The prison was full of criminals. Think of that. The prison's full of criminals. The earthquake comes, powerfully opens all the doors, all the shackles knocked off, and yet nobody moves. Everyone stays. Now, it does seem like Paul has taken leadership and probably had them stay. I think they stay because they want to know what's about to happen, and they don't want to miss it. The reason the jailer goes to kill himself is because he knows his punishment would be, if he lost all the prisoners, his punishment would be execution. So Paul yells out, don't harm yourself. We're all here. (laughs) What a moment. They don't use their freedom as means to escape. They use their freedom as means to testify to who the Lord is. Paul said in Philippians, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. My imprisonment is for Christ because they stayed. God allowed them to stop the jailer's suicide and guide him to life in Christ. He rushes in, this jailer. He rushes in. He goes to Paul and Silas. He takes them out. He asks, what must I do to be saved? This is the greatest and most profitable question ever asked. He knew there was a much greater threat now than just being executed for losing the prisoners. After all, the prisoners are all still there. No, he's asking a much bigger question. Remember the slave girl? For days she had walked around the city proclaiming, these men come to tell you about salvation. This jailer's life had just flashed in front of his eyes, surely. He knows now if God is holy, he stands condemned. But he had heard them singing. He had earned them singing in the midst of trouble. Whatever they had, he wanted. So he doesn't just walk over. He rushes in. He throws his life upon the answer to this question. What must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. When Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, responders' primarily, primary mission wasn't just to get people out of their homes. That's definitely a big part of it. But it was also to clear all the blocked roadways. Lives depended on these roads being made clear. The way of escape, the way to safety being made clear for them to flee on. This is what Paul's doing for the jailer. He's making the way clear. It's simple. Just like the prophetic word this morning. In simplest terms, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What about you this morning? Do you you know what you need to flee from? Do you know this path? to safety. Have you ever asked this question or truly considered, what must I do to be saved? Oftentimes we can be more preoccupied with other questions, questions of less importance, but questions that distract us. Questions like, what must I do to get you fill in the blank? Whatever it is you're wanting must, what, what what must I do in order to get this thing? Or maybe some of you are just right now asking, what must I do to get to lunch? It's coming. 
Sometimes in God's kindness, he will rock your world, an earthquake of sorts, before you know your need for him. But listen, that's his kindness. Maybe you're here today and that's recently happened to you. It's God's kindness to lead you to repentance, to awaken you to see your need for him and his salvation. It's very simple. The way is plain. Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Amazingly, you cannot earn his salvation. There's nothing you must do. You must only believe. Faith in Christ alone. Such is the glory of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of all that Christ has done to free us from our sin. He died the death we deserve on the cross for our sins so that we, through believing in him, might have eternal life and forgiveness. As J.C. Ryle has said, look to Christ and stick to that prescription till you die. That's what's offered to you today. Verse 32, they, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. This became a party, didn't it? He was baptized. The people who believed in his home were baptized. Salvation had come to this house. He was transformed. He went from this rough, retired Roman soldier who kept a prison to this gentle, kind, joyful follower of Christ. He washed their wounds, some of which he had probably inflicted himself. Isn't that an incredible picture of what the gospel does? It's powerful to transform. Paul Darling, or Uncle Mooch, was known as a hard sinner in his hometown. He was notorious. He was a real-life Leroy Brown. And one day in India, or India, Indiana, uh, sorry, he had been working at a factory. And uh, one morning, his father-in-law called to tell him, don't try to come to work. The, the roads are too bad. Ice and snow. Don't even get out in it. And uh, his wife was in the room when her dad called, her husband, and she left the room to go do something. And then when she came back, Uncle Mooch was in tears. This hard man in tears. She'd never seen that before. And she was wondering, what in the world is going on? Well, Uncle Mooch had just become a Christian. His father-in-law was a pastor, and he preached the gospel to him. And this hardened sinner had become this gentle, tender man. When people actually heard about it later, they thought, uh-uh, I got to see that to believe it. I think the same was probably true of this jailer. Also, side note, if a pastor ever calls you on the phone, you're going to want to answer that call, okay? Never know what's going to happen. I bet this, that what happened to him, I bet the same was true of the jailer. Hard to believe. Just hours earlier, this is the worst day of his life, <laughs> but it turned out to be the greatest. Because in God's great wisdom and grace, Paul and Silas witnessed to Christ as they trusted in him and sang in their trials. Last point, point three, the gospel powerfully works in the church. Let's look now at verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, 
the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. The authorities came because they, they thought a public flogging and a night in jail ought to do the trick, thinking these men would stop preaching. So I know, obviously, they had come back from the jailer's house back into the prison and stayed there. So they came and said this, but actually under Roman law, what these magistrates had done to Paul and Silas was illegal. They had, without a formal trial, they had beaten and imprisoned Roman citizens. They themselves could be punished for this crime they committed. That's why they are frightened in verse 38. But don't misunderstand what's going on here. Paul is not pulling out his citizenship card in order to vindicate himself and just shame the authority. Something much bigger is actually going on. Paul is concerned for the church. He wasn't defending himself for his own sake. He was protecting the church he was about to leave behind. If he had left silently, it would have set a precedent for the mistreatment of Christians. He was making a point. The gospel doesn't produce troublemakers. Christians don't do things that are illegal. It's not a group of rabble-rousers. Christianity brings order and truth and peace. Christianity is not a threat to Rome. It's good for Rome. So don't treat Christians like criminals, unjustly, unfairly. And the whole point was so that the proclamation of the gospel wouldn't be hindered. It's amazing. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said this, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. It's an incredible single-mindedness. What a selfless way to live, but what a noble thing to live for. Does that category at all govern your own life? I don't want to hinder the witness of the gospel. Let's be inspired by Paul's selflessness and how he thought about this. The, the, the magistrates do come and they do apologize. They let them out of prison. They ask them to leave the town, which they do. But before this whole, but before they do, they go and visit Lydia and encourage the church. Lydia frames this whole episode, this whole creation of the Philippian church, her love and her care and her hospitality and her welcome and her providing a place to meet. It made all the difference in the founding of this church. Look who, look who makes up the beginning of this Philippian church. Lydia, she's a, a foreign businesswoman. This slave girl who used to be a fortune teller and a converted jailer, the founding members of the Philippian church, radically different people, right? But, but saved by the same Savior, radically united in the same church. I have to read this quote from John Stott, another commentator on Acts. He says this, the head of a Jewish household 
would use the same prayer every morning, giving thanks that God had not made him a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. But here were representatives of these three despised categories, redeemed and united to Christ. For truly, as Paul had recently written to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel powerfully works in the church. In her song, When the Saints, Sarah Groves sings of heroes of the faith who have gone before us and whose lives God used and uses to inspire us to want to be like them, inspire us to live for him. She, she sings of herself being weary and overwrought. And when she is, this is what she sings. She, she says this, I, I think of Paul and Silas in the prison yard. I hear their song of freedom rising to the stars. I see the shepherd Moses in the Pharaoh's court. I hear his call for freedom for the people of the Lord. I see the young missionary and the angry spear. I see his family returning with no trace of fear. I see the man of sorrows and his long troubled road. I see the world on his shoulders and my easy load. And when the saints go marching in, I want to be one of them. I do too. Sometimes I think, man, I could never be like one of them. But the Lord gives grace. So let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to help us to be confident. He can make us hopeful in the midst of adversity. He can make us joyful in the midst of darkness. He can make us trusting in the midst of despair. How do we shine as lights among the wicked and twisted culture we are around? By not grumbling, but by singing in times of trials. When Paul wrote his letter to the Philippian church, years from this moment, he, he said this, and I just hear this thinking about Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer, and they heard Paul had wrote a letter, they'd be eager to hear it. This is what he says to them, I, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We can be confident in the Lord. The church began as trials gave way to the triumphs of the grace of God as his people trusted him. That's what he's doing in your life too. So we can sing. Oh, we can sing. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe that there are many reasons, many reasons for us to trust you. Lord, I pray, especially for those today who are experiencing adversity 
and trouble, trials in their lives. Lord, I pray you would comfort them by your presence and you'd give them reasons from your word so that even in the midst of their trouble, they'd be able to hope in you. God, thank you that you are gracious, that you are loving, that you are good, that you are with us, that you are always at work, and that your wisdom is best. I pray, Lord, we would become all the more increasingly a singing church who trusts you no matter what's going on, because you've proven yourself, Lord. You've proven that you are good. We give you all the glory as we put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Zach Farnell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.